As the quote goes, the creative adult is the child who survived. Today, we're going to talk about your creative space in your home and how even if you don't consider yourself a quote creative, creativity is within all of us. It is part of us. And the discussion today will let you know how your home can support that. So here we go. You're listening to Welcome Home to the Suburbs. Designing a new home to be your family's sanctuary can feel impossible during the stress of moving. In this podcast, interior designer Jill Kalman shares practical advice, design wisdom, and lifestyle tips for anyone moving to a new home. You'll learn all about the psychology of a well-designed home and how to survive the move and thrive in your new life. Say goodbye to overwhelm and hello to a home you love to come back to every single time. Here's your host, Jill Kalman. So today I'm very excited to have with me Donald Ratner. He's an architect and author of a book, My Creative Space, which is how to design your home to stimulate ideas and spark innovation. Donald and I met through Fred Marks. If you remember, I did an episode called Neuroarchitecture. If you haven't heard it, you should listen to that. It really, it ties into this very well. And Fred Marks and his organization, which is the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture, is really what then brought me full circle to Donald Ratner and this new book that he has, My Creative Space, which is really amazing. So today we're going to discuss that book, and I want to tell you just a little bit about Donald. So he is a studied architect, and Donald helps individuals and organizations maximize their creativity by drawing on scientific research in design psychology. His third and most recent book, which we're going to discuss today, is My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation. He has 48 science-based techniques that he outlines in this book. This book has won three awards and been ranked on Amazon as a bestseller. He's also written for numerous print and online channels, including Better Humans, Residential Architect, and Work Design Magazine. Educator and practitioner, as well as an author, Ratner has taught at the University of Illinois, New York Academy of Art, NYU and Parsons. Speaking venues include the Creative Problem Solving Institute, Creative Mornings, Neocon, libraries, bookstores, and conferences. His work has been featured on CNN and in such publications as the New York Times, House, Town and Country, and Architectural Digest. Donald Ratner holds a bachelor's from Columbia and a master's of architecture from Princeton. So welcome Donald with me today for this very interesting and helpful discussion. Here we go. Hi, Donald. I am so happy to have you here with me today for this topic. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jill. Absolutely. So you have this amazing book called My Creative Space. I love how it's laid out. I like the pictures. I really love the information. And I think it'll be also useful to our listeners. And, you know, your book basically has these 48 tactics, you know, which I love, like bring nature in, get with your pet, let in natural light, all these wonderful things. And I want you to maybe give a brief introduction to, you know, what you do. And you're an architect by trade, but I want to talk about what led you to the premise or philosophy of this book, My Creative Space. Sure. So, yes, I am an architect. And most recently, I've really kind of focused my professional activity on helping people optimize their creativity by applying scientific research to the design of space. And I do this largely through speaking with folks like you, teaching and writing. Obviously, the book is very much a 
a part of that. What kind of led me to this point was actually a project I got some years ago while I was, you know, practicing as an architect, focusing largely on residential design and particularly custom residential design. But I got this one commission where it was decided that we were going to build it using modular construction techniques. So for folks listening, modular construction is where basically you build a series of boxes in a Mm -hmm. factory. So if you can imagine kind of these almost trailer-like proportions, maybe 10 feet wide, 20 feet long, 10 feet tall. And -hmm. they have walls, floors, ceilings. They typically have the roughing for, you know, plumbing and electrical already in the wall, a certain amount of finishing. And then they take these boxes in the factory, they put them on the back of a truck and they drive them to the site. They lower them by crane on the foundations that obviously have to be built on site. And by putting enough boxes together, then doing a little bit more finishing work, boom, you have a house or a building, which when you look at it, you would have no idea it was built in a factory. It looks like it was what's called stick built, right? Where we bring piece Mm -hmm. by piece by piece to the site to make a structure that way. And this experience, this idea, it was almost like using Legos to create something versus, say, taking a blank piece of paper and some crayons Mm -hmm. and drawing whatever you want, because Legos Mm -hmm. obviously have a certain set of constraints that come with them. You know, they're only so big and they already are made and you have to put them together in certain ways. So this kind of different way of designing and building got me to thinking, the, you know, the big $64,000 question, what is creativity? And particularly in the, you know, building arts, what's it all about? Because I thought it was one thing and now this is kind of making me think about it in a different way. So I started mm-hmm. to do just a lot of reading and exploring and investigating. And I guess because, you know, I'm looking at it through an architect's eyes and my search terms are creativity and architecture and design. And I start to stumble on a whole series of articles, posts, papers that connect our physical environment with our ability to think creatively, making connections between the two. And Mm -hmm. I kept coming across more and more of them. They're scattered around. Some of them, you know, only other scientists and researchers read. Some do make it through to the popular press. But I got that light bulb moment, as we call it, where, you know, I said, somebody needs to bring this material together and, Mm -hmm. quote, translate it in a way to make it useful for not only my fellow design professionals, professionals, architects, interior designers, and so forth, but Mm -hmm. people at large, people who are interested in, you know, creative activities, whether those are of a personal nature or professional nature. And what do you know? That's exactly what I did and Mm -hmm. eventually took the form of this book where I've really brought everything together from my studies of creativity to my experience as an architect. Yeah, no, you really brought it together beautifully. And so is it also a premise that tapping into one's creativity is important. And the reason I say that there's so many people who will be like, well, I'm not creative. So would this book even help me? Right. But I think is the point that we all have something creative within us and to be able to tap into that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, you know, and I obviously I write an introduction to kind of lay the groundwork for the 48 techniques that you mentioned at the beginning. So one of the key things here to understand is, first of all, creativity, the word, has taken on different meanings over the centuries even, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you ask the person on the street and you say, are you creative? They say, oh, no, I'm not creative because, uh, typical answer, I can't draw. So here is that association of creativity exclusively with the arts, with design, with things of an artistic nature. And that definition has pretty much gone by the wayside, at least amongst the people who literally study creativity for a living. So what creativity now means really is it can be applied to any discipline, any field, any activity for which you can develop these new 
new and useful, valuable ideas for new ways of doing things. And that could be as simple as, you know what, I have a leak in my kitchen sink and I only have bubble gum and picture wire handy. I need to figure out a way, a creative way to solve my problem by using bubble gum and wire to stop this leak. It can be as minor and trivial and and personal as that up to, you know, let's think of E equals MC squared. That was a pretty creative idea there and everything in between. So it's very modest scale. It's very large scale. It's very personal, but it's also very professional. So if creativity is not just about architecture, design, painting, sculpture, well, people Mm -hmm. in marketing fields, publishing, finance, all Mm -hmm. sorts of endeavors where you can start to think of these new and useful ideas, those people are creative too. And the good news is Mm -hmm. that nature has made all of us creativity capable. We have it in our genes because Mm -hmm. of the way we evolved as human beings over the course of millennia to be creative. So no, everybody is creative or at least has the capability. Of course, it's a skill. You want to develop it. You want to work at it. Nothing comes free. But one of the ways we can help ourselves is by shaping our environment to bring out that particular way of thinking. And that's what this book tries to do is how do we shape our physical environment way that we can maximize, optimize, bring out the best in us, because you'd be surprised how influential our physical surroundings are to the way we think, the way we feel and the way we act. Yeah. And there was, you know, there's a quote I saw recently, and I don't remember the exact quote, but the premise of it is that, you know, we all kind of have that artist in us. And it's whether or not as a child, you let it come out or not type of thing. And I forget how the quote goes. But like you just said, it is a part of us. And it's just whether or not it got developed or paid any attention to, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, childhood is key because here's the thing. I mean, we all know, we, we who are parents and, and or have children in our lives, we know how creative kids can be. That's mm-hmm. telling us right then and there, this is intrinsic to our being. The problem is there's a whole series of sort of social pressures that start to come about that diminish and quell to some degree our naturally creative impulse. So for example, you know, in school, kids get tested, right? And when they get mm-hmm. tested, most of the time, what's happening. The teachers, the instructors, whomever the tester is looking for that quote, right answer. So we start to think less about, you know, all the possible answers to a question and finding that one right answer. And then look what Mm -hmm. happens when we kind of graduate college, maybe uh, get a degree uh, and go look for a job. Now we're in a work environment. And, you know, you can try to kind of like push the envelope, think outside the box, but there's a potential cost because people can start looking and say, well, that guy's kind of weird or that person (laughs) is kind of weird. What wacko idea is this they're going out in some strange place you know we're not going to promote them we're not going to we're not going to give them a raise or give them more responsibility so there's these subtle social pressures that kind of push us back and away from creativity it's a problem it's unfortunate and there are educators and people that are trying to address it and change the way we teach kids and change the way we develop creative organizations but it's going to take time Yeah, because it can be stifling for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just discuss the importance of the psychology of home. People who listen to me and know me, and I've mentioned to you, I love talking about the psychology of home, the psychology of space, and we can talk about the importance of this creative space in your home and how it connects. Yeah. So, you know, psychology and space, they're an interesting combination, but there's a wonderful quote that I actually put right in the front of the book, which was made by no other than Sir Winston Churchill, a famous statesman. But he said twice in his life, actually, this very important statement, which is, we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. And I think Mm -hmm. it's that second half of the sentence that really puts its finger beautifully on the idea that, you know what, we don't just make beautiful spaces and make beautiful buildings that we then kind of stand back from and 
and say, oh, isn't that great? And mm-hmm. go on with our lives. There's a whole sort of second cycle, second life to creating these spaces, which is the effect they have on the people who use them. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, just speaking for myself as an architect, not enough emphasis was put on that sort of post-occupancy, as we call it, phase of a building's or space's life. We tend to look at it more as a formal undertaking, and it's a beautiful thing, and that's great, but then it, the story ends. But what yeah. we've come to learn about, and this is really relatively new discipline called environmental psychology. There's actually a whole field that studies the relationship between environment and how we think, feel, and act. And it's amazing the kind of things that they've uncovered through it, through these studies. Now, home, of course, is a particularly unique environment. It's, you know, it's the one place on earth that we can call our own, that we have the greatest amount of control and autonomy in. We are seeing, of course, its unique role as a place of refuge, literally, in real yeah. time, thanks to yeah. the COVID epidemic. Right. It's really not like any other space in the world. It's a place we construct our identity. It's a place where we show how we would love the world to look like if it were entirely up to us. So mm-hmm. home is a unique space. And one of those unique characteristics, just through the data, through surveys, is that home is actually where we are at our most creative. And there's a whole mm. bunch of reasons why that is the case. But mm-hmm. now that we are not only living at home, but also in large cases, working at home and schooling at home, well, it's like it, it's a perfect storm where we can actually exercise our creativity to the mm-hmm. greatest degree possible if we understand the relationship between built space and creative thinking. Mm. Yeah. And conversely, so, you know, Winston Churchill's quote, you know, relate to surroundings being beautiful and that effect. And conversely, if they're unattended to, that has an effect as well. And, oh, yeah. and if, if space is lacking, correct? Oh, exactly. So, you know, space can be a positive element, but there's lots of studies that show space can, if it's not well conceived, if it's ugly in some cases, if it's Mm -hmm. uh, detrimental to our health, it has a very negative uh, impact on us. So absolutely, it can go both ways. But we want to, of course, find the positive and try to manage the negative. Absolutely. No, it's just important to mention because a lot of homes or rooms can get neglected sometimes, especially people moving from the city to the suburbs or having way more space to furnish initially. And it can be very overwhelming. And I help guide them through doing that in stages. But there's some people who I've been to clients' homes where there are sections of a whole house that have gone years, you know, and that isn't serving anybody. You know, it's important is is all I'm trying to um, emphasize. There's two things you mention in your book and I want to touch on. So when you talk about color, you talk about let's look at something blue. I want to talk about that as well as ceiling height. And, you know, let's look at something blue. I'll hear you, you know, talk about it a little and I and I read in your book and why it's a comforting color. And it's just interesting because especially lately, and it's really been the trend for a while. But lately, my most recent clients, everybody wants blue in their rooms to some extent. It really is appealing. So let's talk about looking at the color blue. Sure. So it's interesting that you sort of paired the factor of ceiling height, which I treat in one technique, and the color blue, because they actually are related on some level. Now, with a lot of these techniques, with a lot of what are called inputs, right, primes, things in our environment that are entering human consciousness through one of the five senses and then triggering these outcomes, this improvement in creative thinking, this more flexible way of thinking. There, are many, there can often be multiple reasons why they have this effect, and they can also have multiple 
multiple different effects. Now, I think one of the things with blue is, first of all, it's the world's most popular color. And mm. that crosses cultural boundaries, time and space boundaries. People around the world just tend to gravitate towards blue. And I think there's a number of reasons for that, one of which is just its emotional appeal, its association mm. with nature, right? So when we talk about blue skies and blue waters, those are generally positive things. They make mm -hmm. us feel better. And I think these days with all the kind of negative things going on, it's not surprising that people are turning to this very passive or pacific, I would almost say, in the sense of it encouraging a sort of serene state of mind. Calming, but, right? Calming, exactly. But in terms of creativity, what's interesting about these two things is they both have to do with a, actually, it's a motif that kind of runs through several techniques, which is this, the more open, the more spacious we sense the, our surroundings to be, the mm -hmm. more, and think about how we talk using language, the more open-minded we tend to become, the more open we are to new ideas, new ways mm -hmm. of doing things, new ways of looking the world, which of course are all part and parcel of thinking creatively. Mm -hmm. And what they found through a whole series of studies and tests, and these things are measured, by the way, creativity can be measured. There's a whole science to it. It's not just sort of touchy-feely, feels more creative, feels less creative. What they see is that the sense that the more we can kind of open the space around us, the more creative mm -hmm. we become. Now, that doesn't mean you need 5,000 square foot living room to feel like, oh, I've got a lot of space. There's right. subtle ways to do that. So you mentioned ceiling height. So what they've discovered is that ceiling height of about 10 feet or presumably more actually bring out, they uh, take us to our peak creative performance levels, whereas ceiling heights of eight feet and lower tend to move us into a, that almost mirror opposite way of thinking, which we call left brain thinking, analytic thinking, much more rational and sequential and fact-based thinking. So mm -hmm. there you get a perfect idea. Wow, tall ceilings tend to create a greater sense of openness and therefore my mind is going to kind of open up. Mm -hmm. My mental space is going to open up versus mm -hmm. that more, you know, closed in sense. Well, I feel a little more constrained, a little more constricted. And where does the color blue fit into that? Well, if folks have studied color theory or just are into color, they know know that cool colors such as blue are optically recessive. That is when you look at them, they have they create the illusion of moving away from your eye mm -hmm. versus say a warm color like red, which mm -hmm. actually optically looks like it's moving towards you. So if you're in a purely red room, the it's going to feel smaller. It's going to feel like the walls are converging on you. Whereas if you're in exactly the same footprint size room and mm -hmm. they're balls are blue, they're actually going to feel like the space is bigger and move away from you. So there is mm -hmm. the sense that it's all happening in the mind, but based on what we're perceiving in the environment, mm -hmm. that's important. It's about perceiving, not necessarily what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. Our minds are going to shift more into the creative mode versus the analytical mode. So there are a whole set of reasons why blue would be a good color. And that doesn't, by the way, mean just wall coloring. You could have neutral walls, use natural finishes as kind of foils, but maybe upholstery and window treatment artwork, mm -hmm. even wall coverings could have a blue motif mm -hmm. to kind of prime your brain in this creativity stimulating way. Yeah. And I know you talk about red being stimulating and its connection to, you know, we react to it. It puts us on alert a little. Could that also be a high energy creative zone if it's red or is it almost it surpasses that and becomes more stressful with the um, color red? 
I think it's all of those things. So yes, red is sort of the flip side of blue. So it does tend to raise heart rate. It does tend to raise blood pressure. But if you do it in sort of controlled ways, as you say, it can also add energy to a space. So if you kind Mm -hmm. of modulate it in a way that it's not overwhelming, Mm -hmm. it can be absolutely a good color. It also, by the way, it has been shown to increase appetite. So if you're uh, designing a restaurant, I might suggest that a red-based palette actually kind of works with what you're trying to achieve in such a space. So you can manipulate, you can leverage the known effects of these inputs to achieve certain desirable outcomes. Fascinating. And I know a lot of these things go back to primitive times, and it's a lot of things of how we're coded. And so, because we'll talk about that in a little with shape and whatever, do colors go back to our primitive as well, you know, as far as our response to them? Yeah, I mean, in in a lot of ways, almost everything we're going to talk about today goes back to our evolutionary history because think yeah. of this, it took us like two million years to become Homo sapiens, and yep. almost ninety nine point nine percent of that time we spent in what a natural environment, purely natural environment, right? Mm-hmm. There were no buildings, there's no architecture, there's no interiors, so it's only in like in the last flick of an eyelid that mm-hmm. we have kind of gone one hundred eighty degrees in the opposite direction to where we mm-hmm. now spend about 90% of our time indoors. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, because evolution moves so gosh darn slowly, our mm-hmm. brains haven't caught up to the fact that we're kind of living like a space age life, but with a stone age brain. So we get all these weird anomalies mm-hmm. in our behavior. So like, why, you know, why blue? Why 10 foot ceilings? We don't have to worry about things the way we had to survive, the kind of environments we had to survive in back in the day. And yet mm-hmm. our brains are so encoded so deeply that these mm-hmm. legacies still affect us. So almost everything we'll talk about in some way can be traced back. And I think with red, the obvious kind of connection there is the sight of blood, right? If you're yeah, you mentioned that in your book or fire or or, you or know, fire, it's exactly. all these danger sort of things were red. We get these signals and then we know how to react. We run or we fight or we do whatever it is we need to do based on those kind of inputs. Yeah, I find that part just very fascinating. Oh, and exactly. I and I think we forget. And, you know, innately, we just have some programming which affects how our brain works and perceives these things. So I just, I could talk about that part for hours, but um, (laughs) let's discuss the importance of the home office right now, because we've got so many people working from home and multiples working from home and it's a challenge. And I know you talk about, you know, being productive in a space and you use the Pavlov's dog analogy and you're setting aside space in the home to be productive. And we can also touch on what you describe as detached, enclosed, subordinate, and hybrid flex spaces that you outline in your book as well as segregating personal time from professional time. So I think a lot of the things you talk in the book really can apply to workspace right now. And I'd love to touch on those points because productivity is challenging right now with everybody at home. Yeah, absolutely. So first thing is, yes, in an ideal scenario, people would have as much space as they need to do what they need to do. And one of those, of course, these days with people working at home is that you would have a dedicated workspace you know, that's that's specifically for a certain purpose or set of purposes. And you mentioned Pavlov. So the idea with that is just like Pavlov's dogs, I mean, we all remember how the scientists rang a bell every time the dogs were fed to the point yeah. where he did it so many times that all he had to do was ring the bell and the dogs start salivating because they associating right. <laughs> that input with an outcome. There it is. They've etched 
pushed it into their neural pathways, as the scientists say. Well, mm -hmm. the same thing it is with space. We have a piece of our brain called the hippocampus, which deals with spatial navigation, but it also deals with memory. So the idea is the more times you come to the same spot again and again and again to do a certain set of behaviors, the more immediately your brain will shift into that appropriate mindset just by stepping into that space. So if you have mm. a dedicated space, that's great. Now, you know, obviously there are limits to everything. So if we got kids at home schooling and both parents working and all that sort of thing, space may become a little bit more at a premium. So while a detached space, something that's literally outside the home, like mm -hmm. a work shed or a little office that you go outside your home and walk to is, is wonderful, mm -hmm. or having a separate space where you can close a door, well, sometimes that can't be had. So I call support subordinate spaces where let's say you had a window nook or a bay that projects out from a living space. Mm -hmm. Just carving that little space out, putting in maybe a work surface, a work desk, you could convert that space even though it is completely open to another space. But just by positioning yourself there again, your mind will make that association with mm -hmm. uh, behavior and space. Yeah. And then of course, you know, where you have to multitask a room like, you know, people using dining room tables for kids' desks or for their own work. Mm -hmm. Then you have to think about ways that you can kind of distinguish when are we using the dining room for dining and when are we using the dining room for work. A wonderful story where Charles Dickens, the great you know English author, when he would go out on the road on book tour, he would mm -hmm. actually take little objects, little tchotchkes, mementos from home. He'd bring them with him and he'd set them out on his hotel desk just so mm -hmm. he would make that association with the place with his study back home. Well, what we could do is say, take out a placemat and put it under your laptop only, use that placement only when you're doing your creative work and then take it away because mm -hmm. this little totem, this little signal says, I'm in work mode now, but now it's time for dinner. So I'm going to kind of clear away my things and use the space for a different purpose. So there's all sorts of yeah. ways that we can create the space, even if we don't think that we have it. But, you know, the, here's the other thing about, you know, when I talk about in the book is that in a sense, the entire home is a creative space, mm -hmm. right? Because look, we have great ideas in the shower of all places, oh, which is hardly, you know, place that we think of as a creative work workspace, and yet it actually fulfills that function very well. So think about your whole space, potentially, both for your dedicated work, but also for creative thinking and having ideas. They can come almost anywhere in a home at any time. Yeah. and But for productivity, you almost sort of have to set yourself up for it. And it's funny when I read that because my studio is attached to my house, but it's at the end of the house. It has a separate entrance. Really? Um, when I am in here, which I'm in here now, it has amazing natural light. It has high ceilings. And when I'm in here, I am very productive. I'm very on task. I am much less likely to be distracted when I'm in here versus when I work from the family room, which sometimes I work from my family room too, because now that we have laptops, I can sit on the laptop and I can get things done. But I'm much more focused when I'm in this space. It's interesting. Yeah, it makes total sense because here's the thing. The human brain was never really engineered to multitask whether you're talking about flipping even from even within a work environment from one task to the other, mm -hmm. uh, but in particular going from personal kind of thinking mode, behavior mode to work, back to personal again, we don't have that kind of bandwidth. We used to do kind of one thing at a time. We were hunting, we were foraging, we were cooking, we were sleeping, whatever. We didn't do mm -hmm. things back and forth, and we still need that today. Yeah. There's one of those legacies of our evolution where, yes, you've kind of created this environment where you're free from distractions of a negative kind, and mm -hmm. that's your peak productivity. If you can get it spatially, that's great. That's the mm -hmm. ideal that we should all certainly strive for. 
Yeah. And I think that's where social media, internet and all that kind of comes in where we can get really overloaded. It's like too many things at once. Like I'm trying to work on one thing, but the email's dinging and you're supposed to look at that and check social media and your brain almost goes into overload. And so that's a good explanation as to why we're just not wired to do it. Exactly. You know, it can be overwhelming and almost stressful. There's times where I have to just shut the phone off. If I know there's a certain amount of work I've got to get done, I've got to shut it off, especially if I'm doing the creative work, like putting colors together and putting a design scheme together. I need to just shut it off and get the scheme out and done rather than being distracted. Absolutely. There'll be time for the phone calls later. That's absolutely the right practice. Yeah. So let's also discuss, you have a really interesting part of the book that talks about artwork in the home and how that affects, you know, creativity, mood, and all this other stuff. And, you know, I I did a whole episode on artwork because people can find it intimidating, but it really is important to have in a space. It adds a whole other dimension to space. But from your perspective, let's talk about artwork. So art is both a product and outcome of creativity, obviously, but it's also itself a catalyst, which means if you have artwork in your home environment, it catalyzes, kind of promotes, boosts, however you want to call it, ignites creativity as well. And there's lots and lots of studies that show varying ways it does this. For example, there are some studies that show that viewing art stimulates us to learn new things, to explore, to take risks. So risk-taking, you know, we talked a little, touched on a little at the beginning, is part of creativity. But certainly exploratory thinking, trying new things, going places you haven't been before, all of that art seems to actually stimulate in us. And that makes sense because a lot of times art takes us to unknown places. You know, artists prompting us to think and look at the world in ways that we hadn't done so. Another Mm -hmm. thing you mentioned was mood. So art gives us pleasure. You know, why else would we have it in our homes or anywhere? And here's another one of these kind of broad-based points. Generally speaking, the better mood that we're in, the more positive our mental state, the more creative we become. Mm. And that makes sense because when you're relaxed with your environment, when you're at ease with what's going on around you, there's that lower sense of stress, right? You're comfortable, mm-hmm. then you're willing to go out and take more risk to go out on a limb to try new things. Whereas if you're concerned with self-harm or you feel like there's a threat in the environment, we tend to, of course, withdraw, become defensive. We're not going to sit there and brainstorm, how do I get out of this predicament right now? No, you're just going to pull your finger out of that fire as fast as you possibly can. Sure, yeah. So positive mood, positive effects, things that give us pleasure tend to correlate absolutely with increased creativity. Another thing, something called saccadic eye movement, right? I think we've uh, a lot of folks have heard this term. That means mm-hmm. when the eyes are kind of darting around, right? And we mm-hmm. uh, often read about it when we're dreaming in right. our REM sleep. REM sleep, yeah. Jigging, jigging around. Well, here's the thing. The way the brain is wired is when you look left, the right hemisphere of your brain gets activated, gets, gets mm-hmm. filled with blood. When you look right, it's the left hemisphere. So when you're going back and forth, back and forth, what you're doing is connecting the two hemispheres together. Now, here's the thing about creativity. It's kind of a tricky term. We Mm -hmm. use it, and I think, in kind of two different ways. One, and kind of the way we've been talking about it up to now, creativity is equated with kind of brainstorming, getting those ideas out, you know, getting Mm -hmm. those first thoughts about a space or something that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Whereas, in fact, creativity, and as a kind of holistic term, 
also mm-hmm. means taking those ideas and making sure they work. Because, you know, the last thing you and I ever want to do is show up at a client meeting with a scheme which doesn't work or can't be built or is over right. budget. So right. we have to go through, we actually do have to use our left brain to kind of validate, verify that our ideas, our first blush ideas are actually buildable, doable, affordable, and functional. Yeah. So the idea is the better you are at both sides of your brain, thinking left and right brain, the more holistically creative you're going to be. And by saccadic eye movement, you actually connect the two pieces together. In fact, they even did a study of Einstein's brain, believe it or not, and they found that this there's a bridge element in our brain called the corpus callosum. It's the thing that glues the two sides together. His was mm-hmm. unusually large. So mm. here's a guy who could think very abstractly, obviously, yes. squared mathematically. But he, you know, when you read it, what he talks about, he's actually often talking in pictures and metaphors. He's very creative yeah. in his language. And here's a guy that you clearly said he's using the whole brain to do what he does. Pretty amazing, right? I oh, love very it. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, very, very cool. I like it. So this is a big one for me that I love too. You discuss in your book, gathering in a circle. So I'll give you an example. You know, dining rooms have become a little bit obsolete with the lifestyle in the last several years, meaning, right. you know, they only get used a couple times a year. Right. So there's been a lot of thought about, you know, and in some people's homes, we do something a little different in the dining room. But even if we're keeping it somewhat traditional as a dining room, when we put a round table in a dining room, if it's appropriate in scale and size for the room to use a round, it gets used more. Interesting. And, it, and even in my house, I went from an oval to a round. And we sit in that room like to play games during quarantine. That's where we did puzzles. I might sit with one of my friends and have a drink there and chat. I do find there's something very connective, very warm, very enticing. It almost draws you in. So I'd love to talk about, you know, you talk about gathering in a circle in your book. So I'd love to talk about it. Yes. So this is, it's it's amazing to hear you, you know, say the things you've you've just said, the particular that the people will tend to use the table more than the other shapes. So here's the thing, you know, and I, when I give talks, both live, like in the old days and these days in webinars and so forth, I show a picture is one place where I kind of leave the residential domain. I show a picture of a typical office meeting room. Mm -hmm. And what's in that meeting room, of course, 95% of the time is a long rectangular table. Mm. And what I start to explain is, look, who's going to sit down at that short end there with that one chair down at the end? That's going to be some person of authority. That's the CEO or the project Mm -hmm. leader or the team leader, somebody of importance. Mm -hmm. And everybody else who's sitting around the sides are by almost definition subordinate. So let's say you're having a brainstorming session. People start throwing out ideas and the fellow or fella or person down at the end has an idea. Well, how do you think the people around the table are going to react to that person's idea? You know, on the whole, just because of the sort of political, social pressures, the way offices are set up is you're going to defer to this person of authority. Whereas if that very same idea comes out of somebody, some junior exec or newbie down at the corner, the opposite corner, you know, maybe that idea will fly and maybe it won't. But that's Mm -hmm. the problem because you don't want to have creative ideas evaluated based on who had them, but on how good they are on their own merits. Mm -hmm. And there's a second problem, which is, you know what? You're not going to talk to each other to the same degree depending on where you're seating. 
mm-hmm. uh, around a rectangular table. Why? Because look, let's say you're in one corner and there's somebody down at the same side, but in the opposite corner that you want to talk to. What do you have to do? You have to kind of like stick your head out. You have to turn your neck at like 90 degrees. It's very uncomfortable. You say what you say and then you immediately sit back. And what they've done is study jury room tables, right? If you've ever served on a jury, these are almost always rectangular tables. What what they find mm-hmm. is, okay, you're going to talk to the person across from you. You're going to talk to the person across from you, but maybe down one, but you're not going to talk to the person down at the corner nearly as much. Yeah. And again, that's detrimental to the free flow of ideas, the free exchange of thoughts and concepts. So what you want to do, a great antidote to that is exactly what you are looking at, which is a round table. Think about it now. First of all, there's no special hierarchically privileged seat, right? Everybody is around the table. Mm-hmm. Everybody, just by being slightly angled, towards each other, meaning you're around the curve, you can all see each other, you can relate to each other, you can make eye contact. And instead of the focus being down on somebody down at the Mm -hmm. end, it's now Mm -hmm. kind of in the middle. Think of the middle of the table as almost like an idea basket. If you're throwing out ideas, it all kind of goes in, everybody thinks about it and, you know, renders a judgment. It's just a much more conducive way to interrelate. And Mm -hmm. by the way, that's not just tables. If you think of seating arrangements, Mm -hmm. if you have a sofa, let's say, you know, you might have two side chairs that are, let's say, in some cases, at 90 degree angles on either end. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where it becomes tough for you to kind of turn your head. Whereas if you took those chairs and kind of swung them around, it's slightly angled toward each other yeah. and towards the person on the sofa. Now you've got a sort of triangular situation. I think the conversation, the idea flow is just going to be much more comfortable and people will feel less resistance, which is exactly what you described. Yeah. So I just think it's nice because it goes way beyond geometry when we talk about curves and round in furniture and in furniture placement. So I I think it's a really relate to each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I just find it more connective. The other thing that really struck with me is your tactic number 16, which is making it beautiful. And when I first started my business, my company was actually called Bella Interiors. And the reason was my premise, and it still is my premise, is that I believe everybody's space, no matter the size of it or the budget, should be beautiful. And in my work, when I was done working on a space, I wanted nothing more than for the client to walk in and feel like, huh, this is beautiful, right? This feels like me. This feels good. I can function in the way I want here. And it's very pleasing. But anyway, so I'd like to talk about your making it beautiful that you discuss in your book. Yes. You know, that's a wonderful, obviously, goal to have, something we all strive for. But I think sometimes, you know, outside the profession, people sometimes think of beauty as kind of a luxury that only some people can have or as kind of like a surface characteristic or something that's only important to aesthetic types, that sort of thing. Well, here's where, again, the research starts to, you know, contradict some of these kind of popular conceptions. So, for example, there was one neuroimaging study, meaning somebody puts somebody into a brain scanner. And, you know, if any folks have had that done to them for an MRI or for whatever medical reasons, you know, you can't do much, but you are awake and you can look and you can hear. So what they've done, the researchers have, while they put somebody into an MRI machine is that they show them pretty paintings that have been judged beautiful, or they play music that had been previously judged to be beautiful. And then they zap their brains and they see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then they take another whole set of subjects and they show them pictures 
pictures or paintings of things that have been judged to be ugly or not mm-hmm. beautiful and then play the music that have been shown to be ugly, not beautiful. And again, they zap their brains. And what they find is that when people look at beautiful things mm-hmm. or listen to beautiful music, the reward and pleasure systems in our brains light up, meaning blood is flowing to them. That, you, you know, you would kind of expect that because those are pleasurable experiences. But the really right. interesting <laughs> thing is that when they show them ugly pictures and ugly music, the part of the brain that manages fear activates. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. almost like nature has wired us to run away from things that are ugly, that are not beautiful, which means it's telling us that these ugly things cause stress, right? There's that right. negative outcome again. So we are actually wired to respond positively, have positive mood, positive affect when we engage with beautiful things. It's not just a kind of luxury that we can do with or without. It's actually integral to our biological state. Now, just as interesting a study that really ties all that into what you and I do and what people mm-hmm. listening to this podcast are interested in because mm-hmm. it involves built space. So there was a mm-hmm. fellow named Abraham Maslow, which uh, a lot of people I think will recognize. He's the sort of father of positive psychology. Yep. But he did a study early in his career. Uh, he was at Brandeis University. So what he did was to find three rooms somewhere in the university buildings. Mm-hmm. And he had each one of them decorated, furnished in a different way. So the first room he called the beautiful room. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, it was decorated. And actually, I think he brought his wife in, who I think was an amateur interior designer. And together, they decorated it with, you know, a nice mahogany desk, a nice floor covering, drapes on the windows, lighting, that's bookcase, something nice, you know, that looked like almost like a study or a library. And then they had what they called the average room. So here, instead, they pulled furniture, I guess, you know, from the building, from the buildings and ground warehouse, the university stockpile. So it was, you know, it was a workaday desk, a workaday chair, gray walls, nothing special, but nothing Mm -hmm. terribly horrible either. But then the third room they called the ugly room. (laughs) (laughs) And it was down in the basement. And they had, you know, broken furniture and torn light shades and ash. This is, I guess, what people still smoke. Ashtrays filled with cigarette butts. Okay, so they set up these three rooms and then they bring in their subjects. These are almost always students when you're in a university setting. And they showed every single student, regardless of which room they were in, the same stack of photographs. I think they were all headshots. And they asked them to rank them on two criteria. I think one of them was like, how does this person project well-being or positive outlook, something. And they had them ranking from one to 10, one to 10, one to 10. Well, they weren't really that interested in what people thought of the photographs. What they really wanted to do was gauge their mindset. And what they found was that the people in the beautiful room, by a significant margin, gave higher rankings to the same photographs that people looked at in the average and ugly room. Both of them scored much lower in terms of what people's kind of mindset was suggesting. They had a less happy mindset in those two types of spaces. And here's even more interesting. They found that the proctors, these, I guess, graduate students who would lead the students in to the rooms prior to taking these little ranking exercises, those who brought kids into the ugly room became very irritable, became very anxious, got into a foul mood. So we're seeing how beauty literally impacts on our feelings, on our behavior, and our mindset. It's not something that's just kind of a nice additive is crucial to our well-being. Yes. And that really gets to the crux of how I've always felt because as a designer, yes, it wasn't just about the superficial. It goes beyond that because it does affect how it makes you feel. And, you know, I recently did a podcast as a solo podcast. It it launched this week about, you know, how when I lived in a, a small space that was a dorm room with cement block walls, 
what I did just on a low budget to bring things in of beauty there. And that made me feel better. So I, I do believe it no matter what your space is, no matter what your budget is. You know, when I was young and starting out, I had shoestring budgets, but I, it was always important to me because if I was living just among those cinder block walls and didn't put anything on them or didn't have, you know, another color coming in in, in the sheets or pillows on my bed, I didn't feel the same you know? So anyway, I really love the whole thing. So this book, I'll tell everybody is called My Creative Space. It is for whether you're an interior designer, whether you are a DIYer, whether you are just a homeowner, whether you are a tradesperson, I can't say enough about it. It's written where you can take it in segments. There's a ton of information in it, but it's broken down in a really digestible way. So I really love it. I'm going to leave it to you to let people know where they can find you. And for the audience, this will all be in the show notes. And you can also mention, I know the book sold on Amazon, but it's also sold on a lot of other platforms besides Amazon. So you can even mention those platforms as well, because I think this book is amazing. Oh, thank you so much, Jill. That's, that's very kind of you to say and very warming after the kind of effort that certainly I put and other authors put in the book that just makes it all worthwhile. So Good. that book is absolutely available on Amazon, but also almost all the major uh, online vendors, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. I recommend also bookshop.org, which is a kind of consortium of independent bookstores as a way to support them as well. And if it's in your local bookstore, you can order through that, all the better. As far as finding myself, my website is probably the best place to learn what I've been doing and to find resources that have to do with this whole subject of creativity and built space. So that address is Donald Ratner, and that's Ratner with two T's, very important, dot com. <laughs> and you'll find all sorts of resources there, not only my book, but other books on the subject, educational courses, podcasts, all sorts of good stuff. And then I'm also on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. If you want to connect on a kind of regular basis, you'll find me there as well. That's fantastic. I really enjoyed having you today. I think I've mentioned to you, I could go and talk about this stuff for hours. I find it fascinating. I find it important. And I think it's important for people to understand their house means a lot more than just a chair or the specific fabric or it's just a whole lot more as we've touched on. So thank you for being here with me. And I look forward you know, to talking more to you in the future, but this has been great. Thank you, Jill. It was a pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. I really believe in the connection and the psychology of home. I believe it does have a direct impact on our lives and many other things. And so it's a discussion that always fascinates me and that I'm always happy to have. It was nice to have this continuation from the episode we did on neuroarchitecture with Fred Marks, and then having Donald come on with his perspective and his book. His book is amazing. It has a lot of information that's broken down in really nice small bites. I highly recommend it. There's everything in there from making sure you cuddle with your pet to having natural light and just how all these things have an effect on our well-being. The things that surround us do correlate and have a direct impact on us. So I hope that you found it informative. As we mentioned, the book is available online. I highly recommend it. I'm still going through parts of it and I love it. It has great colored photographs. And again, the way the information is outlined and broken down is amazing. And his 48 tactics that he outlines in detail in the book are also located in this really nice handy index in the back of the book. So if you want to just see his great list of 48 tactics, 
and then dive into the ones that apply, you know, perhaps to you a little bit more. But I really enjoyed it. So from my home to yours, go ahead and spark that creative space in your home. Thanks so much for joining us today. So I hope you're enjoying this show. I know for me, it's been amazing. And I love connecting with all the guests I've had on and connecting with you, the audience. So it's still a young podcast. And so in celebration of that, I want to announce a second giveaway promotion. I am going to be giving away one of my online one-to-one digital services. It is a $500 value. It is ideal to help you if you are moving and need to start getting some decorating done for your home. So all you have to do to win is subscribe, rate, and review this show, and I will pick someone at random. It will probably be selected within the next four to six weeks. So make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. I would love to hear from you, and I hope you're enjoying the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Welcome Home to the Suburbs. Head over to jillcalmaninteriors.com to learn more about designing a beautiful new home while minimizing the stress of moving. See you back here next week.